Welcome to this, the third series of our Ghost Lights podcasts. This season, we'll be talking to some brilliant young changemakers who are challenging the system, asking questions of established leaders, and already making huge contributions in their bid to make the world a better place. It's a great pleasure to introduce my guest to our Changemakers podcast today, Anam Ahmed Ali. Uh, We first met in 2018 in Lisbon when Anam was a legacy fellow for the Ariane de Rothschild Fellowship. Since then, she's become a board member both for UN Women and the Women's March in the Netherlands. She also works at Rabobank, and as if that wasn't enough, excitingly, uh, she'll be the Dutch Women's Representative for the UN in 2022. Welcome, Anam. It's lovely to have you here. Last time we spoke, I think you were in Thailand, but are you at home now? Yeah, thank you so much, Tracy. It's a pleasure to be here. I am back in the Netherlands indeed, and Thailand was, was great and tragic at the same time, but I'm happy to be back at home. Good. Well, we won't pursue the tragic role, but I, <laughs> but let me start off by uh, where, where I ended there. Your your exciting role next year to be the UN Women's Representative in 2022, and I know you've been preparing for that by having lots of conversations with women during this year. And I wonder, you know, as you go into this new role, what what you'll take from those conversations and how motivating they've been. It's been a a great pleasure to be able to fulfill this role and, of course, also a huge responsibility. So with that responsibility comes that when I'm representing women, I need to talk with women, right? And I think that is the biggest stake that we all need to have front of mind. And out of these conversations, there are a few things that become very evident. Uh, And that is that because the teams that I focus on are climate change and technology and the impact they have on women, is that in our current dialogues about climate change, we don't take the, the perspective of women in there sufficiently. And climate change has a disproportional impact on on women, especially women in uh, emerging markets uh, compared to men. You have to think of when there is weather events, when there are disasters that go on, but also drought, women had like get into the situation where they have safety issues, right? They are left behind, their husbands go into the cities, for example, or they end up in uh, refugee camps. So rape in these incidences, they increase. Uh, Violence incidences increase, but also hunger and poverty increases. Child marriages increase because these families, they don't have enough money or or food anymore to take care of their of their kids so the first thing that to to be able to survive together is you know let me marry my daughter off so that she can have a chance of surviving and it's incredibly like it's it's bizarre because we don't think about these impacts when we're thinking about climate change and one of the main things that i would like to achieve is for us to take much more of a gendered lens when we talk about climate change next year the csw which is the commission on the status of women will have a climate team and i hope also and unfortunately i i'm not at the cop 26 this year, but I hope also there that whatever we're drafting will have this perspective in there as well. Yes, that's super interesting, that that lens that you bring to thinking about climate change. You weren't at COP26, but I no doubt you, you, 
you focused very closely <laughs> on it. I mean, did you feel that those issues were addressed uh, in any kind of way that that leaves you optimistic? Well, I mean, the COP is still right on the way. And up until now, this hasn't been uh, a big topic, right? So I'm I'm more optimistic for the CSW and hopefully with that also the impact that it will have on our uh, climate policy. So I, I really hope that maybe in the next, uh, it, it's still going on for another six days, yeah. that we'll see more of that. Super. I mean, I, I think if I look at the sorts of things you've been doing in um, um climate change is obviously absolutely at the centre. But you also, I know from our previous conversations, have been a ferocious worker for diversity and inclusion, a passionate advocate. Uh, and I wonder, I know you work in a bank, you've uh, been an entrepreneur, you've worked in tech and so on. I'm just interested in your perspective How's it going? <laughs> um, unfortunately, to say that I think it's not going well enough yet. And that's one of the reasons why when we talk about climate change, it's, it's, it's not diverse enough. We're not taking enough of that diversity angle in there. And what you also see in, in organizations is that we have token diversity. Like if we have one or two people from like a diverse group, then that's okay. But what you get with that is that you only have a small number. And often if you have a small number of, you know, different people, it doesn't create the ripple effect that you would like it to have. It doesn't create those benefits that you would like to generate, that different thinking, that you know, mingling of different perspectives and with that, the benefits that it can have on your organization and our society. Um, so we need to become more like radical. I don't like pragmatic radical or a realistic radical in that sense to really start pushing this more and, and just doing to be able to really embrace the diversity in our organizations because what you see a lot happening at least in organizations that I'm involved with is that you have some in-stream of diversity but it doesn't stick because people don't feel like they belong because they are such a small number because the culture of the organization is different than what feels welcoming or home or like feels good uh, for a lot of the, the diverse talent. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. I mean, we've been doing some thinking and some work with Robin Dunbar at Oxford, and he's done some research showing that, you know, if in any group, less than a a quarter of them are are female. Actually, if you get to decision making or points of conflict, those those people actually withdraw. And are, as you say, it's it's token diversity. Actually, we need to have diversity that really makes a difference. I think uh, I like your call for being radical. And and actually, Anam, I loved uh, uh, your recent LinkedIn post where, you know, there you are on your huge motorbike with your motorcycle helmet sort of cycling through the um, beautiful Dutch countryside. And then you take off your helmet and you really make a, a brilliant case for, you know, wearing the headscarf and, and your, you know, your, your real sense of how important it is to you. Why did you feel you needed to make that that film? I, I really had hoped, uh, Tracy, by now that we 
we didn't have to, or I didn't have to make that film, but you see that there, we have this perspective on, on freedom that is limited to some extent. So, and, and even in the, in the feminism movement where you see, okay, yeah, we, we need to have equality, but it's, equality to a certain extent. So if uh, a female or would, for example, not want to have a career and wants to stay at home and wants to take care of her kids, right? We are coming to a situation where we kind of don't see that as feminism. While I believe that the core essence of feminism is that you have you have freedom of choice that you can choose to be who you want without having restrictions around that. And the same goes for the headscarf. You see that the feminism movement, but also our societies, we don't see it as freedom for a woman to choose to wear a headscarf. And this is a very important nuance here. It's about the choice to wear it. I am as much against people enforcing women to wear it as I am against people enforcing women to take it off, Mm. right? I understand. I understand the pledge of a lot of people that say, well, in certain countries or in certain families, these women don't have the opportunity to be who they are because they are forced to wear a scarf. It doesn't work to then just go and ban it, right? Because there are many women that do wear it out of free choice, such as myself. And that's what you see, what you see happening. You see that happening in France. You see that happening also in certain cases in Belgium, in certain jobs here in the Netherlands, but also in other parts of of the world. Even the, and I don't know if you saw it, it happened two days ago, the European Commission brought out a, a movie about diversity and inclusion where they used a woman wearing a scarf to say, hey, we need to accept this as well. And the backlash was huge, especially from France. And they took it, they took it down because they saw it as a promotion of, well, I'm like, no, they didn't promote it. They are just saying this is part of something that is okay if there is a choice to wear that. I think that's the key word, isn't it? That word choice and as you say, that's what freedom is, is the freedom to choose and uh, to choose to express yourself or to be who you want to be. Um, there are so many things in Arm I'd like to ask you about. I mean, you know, you, uh, you've done so many things. I mean, what, one of the things, um, back to this word choice, is thinking of you having been an entrepreneur, working in tech. And again, you know, back to this woman question. I mean, you know, as far as I can remember back, we've been talking about and lamenting the lack of women in tech. You know, it's dominated by guys. And again, it doesn't seem to change. Is it that women are not choosing to work in tech or what is it that gets in the way? Uh, I'm asking a woman who has worked in tech. I mean, <laughs> I think we've touched upon a few of those things, right? Like the fact that it's so male-dominated means it's also more difficult for women to feel comfortable and be in these spaces. At the other end of it, we've had, if you look back at, for example, the first spaceship that we brought into successfully into space 
women were an integral part of that. There were some of the core mathematicians uh, that helped us uh, achieve that. But somehow along the lines, it went into the background. Uh, women roles also are in that sense much more, and we still think about it that way, much more domestic, much more in education, much more in, in nursing. And that is okay. That is that is part of, I think, of our biological tendency. That can be. But I think we also need to start from the educational part, starting from primary school also promoting this to girls more and also explaining why it's important. It's because it's so technical and abstract and it's about things instead of people, it sometimes is less appealing to women. But in essence, actually, the impact that we have on humans through our technology is so incredibly strong. And you see that now as well. You see that with the biases that uh, are evident in algorithms, right? Where, for example, if a self-driving car, and they've been, they have been fixing this, uh, but self-driving cars have, for example, much more difficulty or had much more difficulty in identifying people of color as people, right? Which means they identify them as objects. So if there is a choice between hitting a person and hitting an object, the car will go into hitting an object. And if that person is then actually also a person instead of an object. That is like real safety issue that you have over there. But we also see it in HR algorithms. And Amazon, for example, did some testing. They did not put this, they did not use this algorithm, but they kept getting the same kind of profiles that rolled out of that algorithm for high positions in their in their organization because of the underlying biases that, that were built into the algorithm. So by I think promoting this also and making clear what the impact is, we can make more and more that change uh, towards uh, women and women entering the tech world as well. Yes. And I mean, you make a great argument there. I mean, you know, as we develop exciting sort of new technologies, we need all kinds of talents and capabilities from all sorts of people. There's a danger, I think, of, of seeing tech as being very, very technical without, as you say, the need for really thinking about the impact on humans. And um, and maybe also, you know, there's a case of confidence, the need for women to have the confidence to go into these these kinds of industries. And I think, you know, in your in your life, you've you've had various different narratives and various different uh, stages in your career. You've started things from a blank slate, you've been hugely successful and I'm just thinking, you know, sort of younger women listening to this podcast. I mean, where where did that confidence come from, Inam? Where what gave you the the chutzpah to kind of step in and begin things afresh? I think that's a very good question. It's a question that I contemplate uh, a lot on in different stages, and I think the answer would also differ from <laughs> moment to moment. But for me, it really started from basically at home, right, where I saw how my parents would uh, treat my brothers a little bit differently than us, than than the girls at home. So I, I already saw kind of like a discrepancy and I thought, oh, that's unfair, right? Like, that is not okay. So I rebelled a little bit against my parents and, and had those conversations and that ignited for me the flame to create impact. And I think that and, and that wasn't always very clear to me. So I, I also strayed away from that at times. And 
once I was really able to, among others, with the help of, of Samantha, who's your, your partner, to really get that crystal clear, and it's been a journey of years, that became the guiding kind of compass, right? Like, what is my purpose in, in this world? And that is to be a, a force for good. And it doesn't really matter specifically through what tool, but that is the basis of it. And I think once you have that clear, the confidence part also becomes easier because you can go back into yourself and you have this guiding compass that tells you, yes, you know, you should do this because the the cost of not doing this is greater than the cost of doing this. And the cost of not putting yourself out there is greater than the cost of not putting yourself out there. And that, for me, ignites the confidence to keep going, but also to keep adjusting where I think I need to. And I saw this beautiful post a few weeks ago where we talk a lot about integrity and authenticity. And sometimes we feel that if people change that they're not authentic or haven't been authentic or through to themselves before. And I structurally disagree with that because we grow and we learn. So actually to be authentic, you need to change all the time because otherwise you're not growing and you're not being yourself and not admitting that you're growing. And if you can be yourself, then that confidence part also becomes easier. I, I so agree with that, Inam. I mean, I wouldn't be in the business we're in, which is an optimistic one, which is that people can change and as you say should change and that however grand you are or however senior you are you know you should constantly be learning because the world is changing and you know those people that sit complacently inside their mastery I think are not necessarily providing the kind of leadership that that we need right now and on that question of leadership and the next generation and you know we call this series of podcasts, you know, change makers, and here you are really um, that wonderful, you know, description of how you're led by purpose is hugely inspiring. And I, and I wonder when you look at the leaders currently in the world <laughs> and think of the next generation, what sort of changes do you look for in leadership if we're talking about change that will really unleash the potential and enable the next uh, generation to thrive? Sorry, that's a huge question. But um, I, <laughs> from your particular perspective, what would you look for or hope for? I think we need, and, and it's already happening, but in, it, we need to somehow accelerate it together. And that is a change of mindset within within leadership and a change in organizations and our institutions. And it's not easy, but it, for example, a simple or a relatively simple example could be if we look at companies, right, their main driving force is profit and shareholder value, because that is how we've organized our ecosystem, this, the system that we're, that we're operating in. But what if we would, as companies, as leader of companies, not only start accounting for financial results, but also for the externalities that we're creating. We start to account for the true price of resources that we're using and the true price of or the true revenue that we're creating or the true profit that we're creating. So that not only 
includes financial uh, results, but also the impact that we create on our planet, for example, or on human rights or whatever it is, but creating a more holistic view of the impact that we're actually having on this world. Because to be very frank, the, the earth will survive. The question is, will we survive on this earth in a, in a pleasant manner, right? So can we ensure that we create a, a, a society where everything is in balance, nature, ourselves, growth in, in different ways? And that is primarily a mindset change in leadership, but it's also a change to actually doing, right? And you see that. I don't know if you've seen our Dutch prime minister at the COP where in an interview he says, yeah, we're, we're going to do this and do that. And then he doesn't pledge into all the different things that, <laughs> that we need him to pledge into so that companies also start changing and individuals also start changing. So that discrepancy is also very important. It's not just about mindset and, and talking the talk, but also walking it. Absolutely. And actually, Sam, who you mentioned, is is at the moment leading a, a program at Oxford about the economics of mutuality, looking, uh, as you say, not only at financial capital, but also human capital, social capital, and, and importantly, natural capital. And, and that focus, as you say, not only on the what or the words, but the how and the now, rather than 2050, 2060, 2070. But the now, I think, is is such an important point. Um, and um, we, we're almost at the end of our time. I always like to end on a note of optimism and just going back to where we began, which is your role next year and you know, the possibilities that you have in it. I wonder, as you've been preparing for it this year and as you've been talking to women and thinking about the influence that you could have, is there... A particular conversation or a particular story that you heard that gave you real hope for the future? Yes, so many. And it's very hard to choose. But I think one of the ones that really stood by me is of a young uh, Sudanese activist that the village that she grew up in uh, had been dealing with huge weather events from drought through the floods, uh, which had incredible impact on their livelihoods. And the insight that she had, because Sudan is, is predominantly Muslim country, but the insight that she had that inspired me a lot was all the people here, they worry about climate change, but they they don't know how it relates to their to their lives and the role that they have to play in it. So they, she made the connection and she, she started uh, pledging for the role between climate or the responsibility that we have as Muslims versus our planet, right? That stewardship that we have. And by connecting it to religion, it makes it, because it's important for these people, it makes it so much easier for them to bring it back to their lives and actually create small steps to change. And I think that... Building those bridges is something that we need to do more and more together. And this story inspired me greatly to also start doing that uh, here in a way that we can build bridges between ourselves and the values that we have uh, to create that change. <laughs> 
Thank you so much, Anam, for an inspiring conversation. And thank you also to those of you who've been listening. And I hope that you'll join us for our next podcast in this Changemakers series. Thank you so much, Tracy, for having me. Thank you. 